Hello and welcome to this week's Why Football podcast with me, Michael Dryden and Eches Adokru. This week, I am pleased to say we are joined by Michael Galway. Michael is often found on Football Chronicle, These Football Times and Onside View. He has contributed to Football Chronicle's upcoming book, Iberia Chronicles, A History of Spanish and Portuguese Football. The book is due to be released today, the 5th of October, and you can find a link to buy the book on Football Chronicle's Twitter page. Before we start, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at YFootball underscore. Please also follow and subscribe with us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast for immediate access to future episodes. So, uh, Michael, it's, it's glad to have you on call. Uh, how you doing? I'm very well, guys. How are you both? Yeah, yeah I'm well, thanks. Uh, you know, buzzing for the Arsenal game later on. Um, didn't do brilliantly against Liverpool in the league game. I'm hoping uh, it's a bit more promising tonight. Nicolas Pepe is starting, so hopefully he can uh, produce a bit of magic tonight. That should be a good game, shouldn't it? Hopefully, sort of second string for Liverpool. So hopefully it's all right. Yeah, their second string is a bit questionable at times, but their game against uh, what was in the, the AFL Cup where Curtis Jones just pulled off some some absolute wizardry in midfield. So hopefully he'll play tonight. But if if Arsenal fail like they did in the, in the uh, Community Shield, then who knows what will happen. Are Sunderland still in the competition, Dryden? Uh, no, we got knocked out in the uh, first round by um, Hull City, who are also in League One. Now, we actually battered them all game, which is, you know, surprising. Finished nil-nil, then we lost on penalties. So, you know, so brilliant. George Honeyman, who everyone will know if he if you watched Sunderland Till I Die, came back to Stephen Light as a Hull City player and uh, won the game for them. So, we're out of that. I think we're in the FA Cup still. So, you know, we're in the EFL Trophy. <laughs> against in the 21s the one everyone wants to win though that one really isn't it <laughs> that's the that's the big one yeah, if you want to have a if, if you want to see one. a full match report for the game against Hull please head to the Y football Twitter page uh, try and we'll fill you in on that one uh, so moving, moving back to you uh, Michael uh, it's really good to have you on uh, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself so kind of how you got into writing and you know what you're up to in general yeah so for me right I was always a football fan but never very good at playing football so writing was the only other option, basically. <laughs> Quite simple, you know. I was much better about thinking about football, so it was the easiest way. Um, and then, yeah, sort of went to uni, didn't write for a while, finished uni, and then just had an opportunity, so took it. And I've done it for a couple of years now, a little bit sort of more in depth on football, and that's about it for me, really, in terms of the writing side. Like you know, just pushing forward, trying to have some fun with it, really. Yeah, I think Dryden wanted to send a shot saying I'm not very good at football, uh, but you were talking. So Dryden, would you like to finish that one off? Yeah, I just said like edges in terms of the football part. But I mean, I'm, I'm hardly playing for a, for Sunderland or Arsenal. So <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 Michael, uh, how did you get involved with the Football Chronicle? Uh, it's a really interesting type of outfit. I'd be keen to kind of know how did they approach you? Did you approach them? How did it all come together? So it was really just as simple as obviously quite a lot of writing now. It's a lot easier to get in at the ground level because it's all online, it's all Twitter-based. And I literally mm. saw a tweet from from Karen, the writer, one of the guys who helped set up the whole site, and he was just saying, looking for writers, and, you know, just took a chance, really. Just said, sent him a message saying, look, never had any experience properly. I've just written in my spare time. And he said, not a problem. So obviously waited for the site to sort of get set up and then just come up with some ideas to start with. And yeah, I just went from there really. So obviously 
obviously they're the site which um, the book is from as well. So it was proper ground level. So I've seen that site grow from the bottom and it was really lucky that they were there and able to say, yeah, just go in and have a go, really. Yeah, fair, fair play. Uh, out of interest, who do you support again? Um, I'd say I'm a Liverpool fan, but I've not really supported Liverpool since they actually got good again. So brilliant timing, obviously. I see. At least, at least you're honest. I like the honesty. I, I find I enjoy football more, not as a fan. As a, I prefer watching games that don't involve teams I've got an interest in. Yeah, it's hard to mix it. But with fantasy football, it becomes yeah. very difficult, I find. Yeah, <laughs> Ruins exactly. it. Yeah, Dryden struggling yeah, at the moment. Fantasy football has killed many games I've tried to watch. <laughs> I can't say my start's been great this year. Uh, has it not? Who's your captain of interest for this coming week? I swapped it to Timo Werner this week. Mm. I'm good for Jimenez, I think. So there's a lot of dodgy calls. But I just don't... I want to see De Bruyne. I want to make De Bruyne my captain, but I just... Just against Bielsa, I'm just so sceptical. Like, I'm just so scared of Bielsa. He's <laughs> ruining my team. Well, I've, I've, I swapped out my keeper. I put Meslier in because he's had a good start to the season. So De Bruyne yeah. was straight out mm. as my captain. No no chance. I need him to not score or assist. Yeah, fair fantasy football is just... Actually, I'm doing quite well this year. Normally, I'm doing quite poorly. But yeah, we'll wait and see. So um, moving on to the, the actual book itself, how did the idea kind of come about did it was it like Karen and you guys kind of put your heads together or did did he pitch it? So he pitched it to us. He sort of we just got I got this email that was like uh Football Chronicle goes to print type of sort of email subject and it was obviously quite an intriguing email to see. Obviously everyone who has any interest in writing wants to be written and see their name in print. And mm. then it was just this sort of concept of going with Iberia, obviously as the Spain, Portugal link and creating this collaborative effort to put a book on paper and obviously yeah as soon as that email came as soon as you read through it it was like yes definitely want to be involved it's sort of it's a chance it's a much easier way of getting your name out there and a little on a print i've got a copy of the book at the moment and you just see your name on page and it's quite surreal still so yeah it's the <laughs> idea of let's all put our heads together and try and come up with this because it's quite a different way of doing it as well because most books you see are written by one person, this one narrative. It's a little bit more of a fluid approach to creating some sort of publication. And it, I, I think it's brilliant, obviously. But I think this, we've done a great job of everyone involved putting it together. There's some brilliant pieces in there. And it's, it, yeah, it's just a great work. Oh, fair play. It sounds, it sounds really interesting. I mean, it comes out. When the episode drops, I think the book would have just come out. So I look forward to getting my hands on a copy. Uh, one question I do have is why specifically was the focus on like Spain and Portugal? I can't really say for certain what the idea was behind it, but I think Spain and Portugal have got this such this rich history with football. Even like going back, to, obviously you see the recent times now, the Spanish success at the turn of the century and started uh, going back to the last decade. Portugal have started to get some international success again. No matter how far you go back, there's this brilliant, like this constant theme of successful Spanish and Portuguese football stories. If you go back, like many books have been written looking at uh, quite a lot of this idea of the success of Spanish teams, Portuguese teams, players, managers having success in those countries. And I think there's, it's, it's quite an untapped market almost, I think personally, mm. in terms of how much it gets covered because of the recent successes. 
So everyone knows about that Benfica team of the 60s or Portugal now or Spanish team around the turn of the decade. And then this is going a little bit into some other stories that are there that are just waiting to be told. So I think it's just an it was a really good market to get involved in because of how much there was available. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, yeah, it, when you think of Spain and Portugal, yeah. they have got such a rich history. Um, you know, Spain's most recent World Cup and Euro wins, some of the quality of the what Portuguese uh, have produced from Ronaldo to Figo to Eusebio. Um, it, it really is a history to tap into along with the size that you just mentioned then. Yeah, and I feel like um, Italy has that romance about it and a lot of, a lot of that comes from the, the, the Italia 90 kind of or the the Calcio Channel 4 show that everyone used to watch as kids, I think a bit before our time. But um, And obviously you've got Premier League, which obviously everyone in England is fascinated with. But Iberia, and particularly Portugal as a footballing nation, isn't often co- covered in literature, I find. Um, and it can be interesting, as you said, Mike, to have a number of authors focusing on specific areas. And you find that with other forms of literature, history books typically. And this in itself is a history as well. So it, it does provide very specific um, pieces on each, which I think will be interesting. I'm looking forward to reading to reading it. Yeah, so moving on to your focus in the book is on, on Boa Vista. And it's the kind of the subject of this pod, um, largely on their title win in 2001. So can you tell us a bit more about Boavista's rise at that time and their title win? Yeah, so Boavista as a club were always in and around the top league of Portuguese football. It was always obviously most famous for those checkered shirts that just sort mm. of capture your eye instantly. Um, but they were never a like, true successful team. There's odd cup wins, odd occasional forays towards the top of the league. But mm. sort of just before like the turn of 2000, there was this chance to progress and they made sort of two big decisions they changed the chairman so a younger more sort of adventurous minded chairman so we say came in and then they hired Jamie Pacheco as manager and obviously Pacheco came with his own experience won the European Cup with Porto in 87 and there was this sense of a couple of second place finishes odd like um, they played in the Cup Winners Cup and then there was this odd chance almost obviously it's historically dominated by three teams and Boavista was building, obviously, I say, sorry, losing track of it, but Boavista had this pattern of selling their best players as mm. most mid-table teams do. So Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank is probably the name that most people know who played for <laughs> Boavista and he was sold to Leeds just before this success. Um, and then there was also Erwin Sanchez who'd left to go to Benfica. And so it was not a team of superstars, which is quite, it's got quite a lot of parallels to that Leicester team that won the Premier League. Mm. In that there was no real, obviously Leicester had Vardy and Mares, but there was no real superstar. It was a collaborative effort. And that's what mm. Pacheco brought to that team. He, he linked that group together of, okay, we might not have the star players, but let's work harder, work smarter, and do more with what they had. And so the start of the season, there was that not sense of, oh, we can do this, but there was a feeling that something was brewing. You can sort of see it. There was this idea that there was a chance that Boa Vista could push and challenge the big three. Mm. Yeah, I saw a quote from Fabio Capello, um, which hailed uh, Pacheco's uh, season that year, referring to him as the most hardworking team in Europe, um, which probably quite well describes how they were. 
um, as a side. Um, they also had Ricardo, I believe, around that time. The yeah. keeper that um, sank English heart, English hearts in Euro two thousand and four, and that was my f- one of my first major heartbreaks as an England fan. So I'm still it still keeps keeps me up at night. So how did they fare in Europe at that time? There wasn't much success. So the season that they were winning the league, they were in and around European competitions, but it was never past because the Champions League had that weird two two to two group stages at the time. Mm. They were lucky if they made it out of the first one. So one of the reasons I found this story was because one of my earliest football memories is watching an old uh, an old DVD of Liverpool's treble winning season when they won the three cups and they uh, they played Boa Vista in that season and that's where that name of Boa Vista stuck mm. in my head. I always assumed they were this great grand football team but they weren't. Um, but they never managed to quite progress as far as they probably would have wanted in Europe originally. There was chances but it, they always seemed to be drawn against the likes of Manchester United or Borussia Dortmund um, and so there was never true success on European stage which I think would have been the crowning achievement for this team um, but up until that before the title win anyway they just never quite had enough to get over the line in European competitions I think unfortunately they always ended up in the Champions League as opposed to the UEFA Cup which might have given them a better chance Yeah I, I read that they, um, when they finished second in 98 99 um, after the chairman changed hands and um that was obviously a landmark season, but in the following season, they were then in the Champions League, which for any team, even now that is kind of risen to that level, won't necessarily have, might not necessarily have the squad to compete at that level or compete across multiple tournaments in one season. For the following season, they kind of built the lessons on that, where they obviously stormed to the to to victory, conceding only twenty one goals. I read, which is pretty mad. I know these play a fewer games, but that's an impressive stat. It was like defensively, that team was just near unbeatable but it started quite sloppily as well because they didn't have Ricardo in goal for the first six or seven games of the season and then Ricardo come in and just the ship steadied with his crazy antics as we all <laughs> as we were saying in the Euro 2004 but there was this run I can't remember the exact figures but they didn't concede a goal for like probably it was like eight or nine games in a row they were just so compact so hard to break down and it became that old 1-0, 1-0, 1-0. And I think that was what they needed because I think, yeah, they were coming from these European games and that season where the season after they finished second, they were struggling with that balancing of the two. And then you've got this idea of, okay, how do we translate from European football back to Portuguese football? And that hard-working nature just set in and just, yeah, however many, 21 goals in a season is just, un- is just unbelievable <laughs> figures. Yeah, so who was in who was in that defence? Because twenty one goals is that's like Jose Mourinho first season in England levels. So that's pretty an impressive feat. Yeah, so I think it was never there was no superstars really. It was mainly all about Ricardo, uh, which is obviously as you say a good goalkeeper can build a team, and Ricardo was this keeper that just held it together. Like um, there was a I can't remember the name of the keeper who was in there in the first place, but. They conceded. Mm. There was two games in a row where I think they conceded three times at the start of the season. There were these big, high-scoring games, and it was like you look back at it from looking at the end of the season, and you think, "How's this happened?" But again, there was no real household names in that defense. It was one of them truly team efforts, which is obviously 
quite remarkable now because you assume there's usually one star in every team, which obviously you might say is Ricardo. But as a defensive unit, it was interchangeable almost. It, really, I think I I reckon you could have put anyone in that defense at that time in that squad, and they probably would have done as well. That's how well drilled it was. I'm not too sure you could put me in that defense, but um, you know, yeah, I think yeah, I think pushing the boat <laughs> a little bit too far, but yeah, it does sound uh, pretty watertight indeed. And again, the um, the parallels with Leicester there are quite um, evident. I mean, Schmeichel was a, a very prominent within their title win, but the the defence above them. I mean, obviously, um, Huth and Morgan chipped in a lot of goals, but they in their own right aren't superstars. Are not someone you'd ever or players you'd never um, think would win the Premier League. Obviously, Danny Simpson throwing that category, <laughs> and someone like Christian Fuchs as well. So you, I think there's parallels there with with Leicester. And interestingly, this season, actually, they've started off getting absolutely battered. So they lost, they drew three all in their first game. And then last week, they lost 5-0 at home to Porto. Um, so so moving on, what happened to Boy Beast after then? So it, it carried on quite well for the first couple of seasons. They finished, they had another second place finish. Uh, I think it was the season after. I think they finished second again, or second or third. They started quite, to, they looked like they were going to become this fourth team. And then obviously there was that the year Mourinho won the UEFA Cup with Porto, the mm. uh, two thousand and two three season was the I think this for all of that squad this has probably got to be the moment that they look back on and think that would have been it that would have been the greatest achievement because they made it to that the semi finals that year against Celtic it wasn't defensively as solid during the UEFA Cup run they conceded goals yeah they always relied on the away goals rule or a home legs or a penalties shootout it was quite a scrappy run but they were if I remember the uh, I think they drew one all away at Celtic or it was nil nil at Celtic and then they got back they were playing in they were playing in Porto and then I think it was a Henrik Larsson like 80th mm. minute goal that knocked them out and it was it because obviously you'd ended up with a, an Oporto clash for the final which as uh, if you're watching a, a cup final as a neutral, you, what more would you want than a local derby? Yeah, and absolutely. So there was this slight missed opportunity. I think they'd look back on again. It appeared that everything was going right. They appeared to be on the up. It looked quite like a successful team that was building quite quickly. In that within Boa Vista, it looked like there was potential there. Yeah, Hen- Henrik Larsson surely must be the best player to. To have stayed at Celtic for that long. I mean, he was a fantastic player, obviously, in the Barca and United, and it just baffles me that he stayed in the SPL for so long. Any of our Scotch listeners, uh, don't please, please don't take offence to that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, but so after that um, semi final defeat, obviously, it could have been Porto in the final. They then had a bit of a downturn, I believe. So they finished 10th in, in 2002 or three, and then 8th the following season. And then Euro 2004 came along, where there was talk of building, well, they, they built a new stadium. Um, and it, it led to the club going to a bit of financial ruin. But yeah, so it's, it was an interesting period for, for the club. So what are they like now? Do we know what they're like now, guys? They're a mid-table team at the moment. Mm. They seem to be hovering around that ninth, eighth place. I think they finished like ninth or eighth in the last like three seasons. They've been a steady team back in the top league, which has been quite a remarkable turnaround again. But they have sort of settled again now. Mm. They were caught up in the um, the Golden Whistle scandal, which I learned about in reading for this pod, um, where they were accused, among other teams, of, of intimidating referees into giving them de- decisions. 
arguably quite similar to the Caltropoli scandal in Italy. Um, so they were relegated to the second division and then found themselves in the third tier. So yes, as you said, for them to be now a mid-table team in in the Primera League is uh, is impressive and hopefully they can come back to the heights they had in the early 2000s. Oh, so mainly just so we see more of those shirts on the television because they're incredible. It's an incredible kit. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, I don't like the black and white colours, but um, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> it's unique at the very most, very least. Yeah, so it's a kind of... We touched on, you know, Bervista and their rise and their fall. But it's just, again, researching for this pod, I was looking at uh, the Premier League winners. And you scroll down on Wikipedia and you just see Sporting, 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 Porto. Porto about three or four times. Then Benfica get thrown into the mix. And you actually find out that since the beginning of time, only two other sides, except for the big three, have actually won the league. Uh, Belenes, if I said that correctly, in, I think, 1946. And obviously Bovista in 2001. And it's kind of this question of, can that league dominance between those three sides end? You know, can anyone actually, do you think, break that, either this season or in the years to come? It's it's hard to see it happening, I think, especially with the way, how much involvement money has in football, more so now than it ever has. For these, for the big three, it's just, they finish top three nearly every season, get all that money from playing Champions League football and rebuild. They sell players on for millions and it's, you can't really see a way that they could be broken. Obviously, there's a piece in the book, another uh, written by Dan Parry, I believe, which talks about Braga, because they seem like a club that could potentially be shipping away at it. But, like you say, you look back and it's just this domination, and I personally can't see it changing soon. I don't know about either of you guys, but... Yeah, Bovista, I've, seen, I've read our... Um, very much a stepping stone in, but then as probably as are every other Premier Division League, uh, Premier Division team that aren't Sporting, Benfica, or or Porto. And we mentioned Hasselbank, Nuno Gomez at that time when uh, Boavista, um, but prior to them winning the title, uh, came through their academy and went on to to better things. Um, and come back to Braga, um, they're now influenced by Jorge Mendes, um, who also has an influence over pretty much every Portuguese player in world football. And Wolves, Wolverhampton Wanderers as well. So, interesting if we see any parallels between how Wolves are performing and their rise, um, to how to how Braga are now kind of disrupting the um, the top of the Premier League. I mean, I think they finished second and fourth in the last five years, um, which is certainly going somewhere to break in that um, trio of dominance. It shows how sort of dominant that this league's become. That Sporting haven't won it for I think like nearly twenty years now. So you're almost mm. rooting for Sporting to win at this point just for someone different. And they are one of the three most successful teams in the country, but even they can't get a look in now. And it, I think that's the striking thing about the league is if one of them big three seems to fall away, it doesn't appear to be someone to replace them. It just appears the other two just push a little bit further ahead. I, I personally think you're going to see Porto and Benfica trade it back and forth for a good number of years now. It's, they just appear to have that edge. I think, I don't, I don't know what it is about the two, maybe it is, facilities at the moment or anything like that but they seem to be able to maybe keep their best players for maybe a season longer so we've seen Carvalho leave quite early from sporting when he went off to go play for Bayern there was this he left was very young I think traditionally maybe he might have got another two seasons at sporting before you move and I think that comes to part of it I think you're going to see Porto and Benfica use their financial muscle, the fact that they've got some of the best facilities in European football to say, just stay for a season longer, try and have a run in the Champions League and then get yourself the big move. 
So personally, yeah, I think it's going to push further away as opposed to anyone getting closer. There's, there's parallels to be had there with the um, the Eredivisie and with the Ajax. Um, that same kind of dominance you have with them and perhaps you'd say maybe it's Feyenoord and um, PSV probably is more prominent over the years in that they've got this this breeding ground that we've, we've touched upon on different pods on different subjects. They've got this breeding ground where an 18-year-old youth prospect, such as Delict, I think he captained the club in the Champions League when he was 17, can come through and because you haven't got the short-term kind of incentives or potential kind of downsides in the Premier League if things go badly or in, in one of the top five leagues, you can play these young players and then they get touted like when with Ajax's Champions League semi-final reaching team and then they get these big moves away. So not only does that keep the league kind of lacking in that high that high talent, but it also means that there's a, there's a, there's a big kind of... Um, well, these clubs have a, a big motivation in terms of generating talent or at least getting talent from other teams in the league so that they can produce them to this level to then sell on. So there's a massive financial implication there um, and desire for whoever owns the club to to produce kind of this, this churning kind of systematic conveyor belt of talent coming out of the country via them or through them. So that's it from us. Thanks again to Michael for coming on this week's episode and thank you all for tuning in. Please, before you go, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at YFootball underscore. Please also follow and subscribe with us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Aircast for immediate access to future episodes. Cheers, guys, and we'll see you next week. Okay.